everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at modern retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient epics known for both brutal violence and instances of sexual assault. This episode is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverage and snack ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. We are doing part, that's part four, part two. <laughs> it's been a long week. Part two of Ithaca, a novel by Patrick Dillon. And we left off last week. We did the Telemachus thing. We met Norsicaea and Odysseus was just about to start telling everyone his amazing journeys. And I know you were looking forward to seeing it through the eyes of Norsicaea, which we don't really get we just get Odysseus doing his talking thing. I am Odysseus of Ithaca. And then he kind of goes on and tells you roughly what happened. And it does have giants and there aren't any gods, which we kind of already talked about before. We felt like this wouldn't be a god-heavy adaptation. And Aeolus is present in this one, but he's a very powerful sorcerer who gives them a bag of winds instead of a god. And that was fine. But then for me, once they got to Circe, who doesn't physically change the men into pigs, they think they're pigs and they behave like pigs, but they're still men. But that wears off once the potion that they've drunk wears off. It's not something that she has to lift herself. And I had a minor problem with that because Aeolus is this all-powerful sorcerer who can somehow conjure all the winds of the four corners of the world into a bag. But Circe can't permanently change people I quite liked the, it was a mental change rather than a physical change. That I thought was a really interesting twist. But I didn't like that she's not the same level of like powerful sorceress that we expect and that would kind of match up with Aeolus. So that bothered me slightly. What I did very much enjoy was Arisi. She is the, the queen of Phoenicia who Odysseus is retelling his adventures to. I did like her mild interjections of, did you tell Circe that you had a family and a wife and a son and, and you stayed for five years because why exactly? And then she asks the same thing of Calypso. And he says, oh yes, she knew, but she wouldn't let me go. And I desperately wanted to leave, but there was no wood anywhere on the island. And every time I tried to build a raft, she burnt it. I had a sense of, I think you are protesting too much, sir. I feel like Risi also felt that way. She was not overly impressed with Odysseus and his, his stories and his tales. And while we don't get kind of like the internal reaction of Nausicaa to Odysseus, tales her mother is a little concerned not massively concerned because apparently Nausicaa falls in love every other week with a different person but a little bit concerned and not terribly thrilled that Odysseus lets her daughter brush his hair and shave him when a he's he's an old man he should honestly know better but we get through all of Odysseus journeys I think Nausicaa believes him I don't think her parents believe him and essentially 
Odysseus does the supplication thing at the end and begs for a ship to take him home. And everyone is super thrilled about this because that's really just what they want to do is put this weird old fighter person on a boat and get him the hell away from their daughter. And I don't say I blame them very much. I think as a parent, that would be my preference also. But he goes and he arrives in Ithaca and it was very, very cleverly done because instead of the goddess disguising him, just straight up no one recognizes him because it's been 18 odd years. He's old, he's limping, he's not the tall, strong, masterful hero that they all remember and in some cases love, in some cases horribly resent. So he he goes to Euromachus, like the, the pig farming area and goes into the hut and talks to Euromachus and is like, do people miss Odysseus? And what do people think of Odysseus? And he's a faithful servant. He does miss his master. He would like him to come home, but he's pretty sure he's dead and doesn't believe Odysseus for a second when he says, I am Odysseus. Because, I mean, why would you? He says, we get someone turning up here every other week claiming to be Odysseus or claiming to have met Odysseus. And I have seen so many groin gored men who claim to have, have got this particular scar when they were boar hunting in their like very early teens, and none of them have been Odysseus. One of them almost got into Penelope's bedroom, which I thought was very, very clever. So no one believes Odysseus at all. And Telemachus comes home, you get a bit of narration with him on the boat, and you get the recounting of, of he and Polycast going back to Nestor and asking Nestor for help. And he says, essentially, sorry, lad, I can't help you. I'm not sending my daughter back with you either because you are going to die now. You do realize this. Yes. Terribly sorry. Lovely to have met you. Very fond of your father. Nothing more I can do. So Telemachus, off he goes. He's also pretty convinced he's going to die. And on his way home, he manages to avoid an ambush that was set for him by two of the suitors who were planning on killing him because why wouldn't you be planning on killing him? So he jumps overboard from the ship and swims off into the distance and, and gets off on the island and leaves his crew to essentially say he was lost when he was out adventuring looking for Odysseus. And he uh, winds up at, at Eurymachus pig hut also and meets Odysseus, doesn't believe for a second it is Odysseus because again, why would you? You have an Odysseus turning up quite regularly. And it's only when, and this is where the illegitimate daughter comes in, it's only when Telemachus asks Odysseus what offerings he left at the hilltop shrine. He lists the three that everyone knows about and then he lists the fourth, that owl that he had carved. And we know, because at the beginning, this daughter of Odysseus has an owl exactly the same as the one in the in the temple. And Odysseus says, I made the owl. I made one for Telemachus. I made one for my daughter. I put the one for Telemachus in the temple. I couldn't put the other one in there because no one knows I have a secret love child with a, a random woman in the village. So I gave it to her. And it's only then that Telemachus believes this must be my father. And... I thought that was, it was a nice twist. It was interestingly done. It again, kind of skirts around the issue of having the gods present and moving in the world. And it's, it sets Odysseus up or continues to portray Odysseus as this old, weak, 
like damaged man, as you would kind of expect after what, 10 years at war and then eight years roaming the sea and being pummeled by giants and seduced by attractive women. So, <laughs> so I liked that you don't get people recognizing him because he doesn't look like him anymore. It's been so long. Why, yeah, truly, why would people recognize him? It's been forever. So that was good. And then the rest of it kind of follows vaguely the path we would expect, right? Odysseus is kind of inserted into the great hall as a beggar, declares his father dead. Penelope is deeply distressed and says, no, no, he's not. You can't know that. You didn't see a body. You don't have any evidence. And Telemachus says, sorry, like we can't just keep waiting forever and ever. And the you get a little scene with Odysseus and Penelope talking to each other. And Penelope essentially tells Odysseus that if he her husband came home a broken man, she wouldn't want him, which was probably a little bit cutting, just a little bit. But Odysseus, you know, hangs around anyway. And we have the, the fight with the suitors, as we all expected. But Telemachus, kind of as we talked about last week, isn't really... There isn't a lot of planning that goes into it. You know there's going to be a fight. Telemachus definitely expects to be killed. But then Penelope comes in at the last minute, essentially dressed in wedding garments and does the whole, whoever can string my husband's bow will be my new husband. I'm not going to marry down. And obviously no one can do it. And it was great because Telemachus said, we had this plan, but in the end, the plan that we had to follow was Penelope's. And this was what my mother was waiting for. She was waiting for an ending. It wasn't just loneliness keeping her going. It was like loneliness and unknowing and just needing an ending. And this is the ending that she chose for herself. None of the suitors can string the bow. Eventually Odysseus strings the bow and he kind of gets a bit bloodlusty, ends up using all of the arrows to shoot a bunch of suitors, then like falls down in exhaustion and Telemachus steps in with a sword and a couple of other guys and starts like wildly swinging and defending his father. And then kind of they get pushed back and pushed back and pushed back until I'm because it's like, okay, well, this is it. I'm, I'm dying now. It's been great. Thanks everyone. And Odysseus kind of pushes back at him until I'm because it's pissed and pushes against his dad. Like, I can't do anything. What, what do you think you're doing? And he says Odysseus like stands up like a bear and essentially just charges and goes into full blood rage, battle lust thing, kills pretty much everyone as we anticipated and then penelope wades through this bloody hall with and it describes the the hem of her dress trailing in this blood and like being so slowly dyed blood red and embraces her husband and that's a, a lovely homecoming that they're all very happy for and it doesn't end there which i was kind of expecting it to you get the the hanging of the the one serving girl i'm glad they did not hang every serving girl but they hung the one serving girl that they knew had been fraternizing with the enemy and whatever serving boys that that they felt were collaborators also but telemachus had no part in that once the actual battle is done once once he's not fighting against other armed people he just ain't interested he's done thank you very much and it's Odysseus who kind of takes back over. And the rest of the, the narration of Telemachus on the island is mainly talking about how Ithaca 
now Odysseus was back, is too small for Telemachus and is no longer his home. It's reverted to being Odysseus' home. And Penelope isn't his mother anymore. She's Odysseus' wife. And he he doesn't feel like he has any place at all in in the, the house and on the island where he grew up. Which is quite sad, really, because he spent his entire life waiting for his dad to come home. And his dad does come home. And it's uncomfortable. is surprising. But it was sad to me that home isn't home anymore. And you don't really have a family anymore because your mum has just turned everything she is back onto the husband that she's been waiting for for so long. And at a couple of points, Odysseus mentions that Telemachus needs to learn to be a proper fighter now and he'll get him enrolled in an army and he'll go and get some experience and some real battle scars. And Telemachus is like, nope, <laughs> thank you, but no. And Odysseus is very confused and perplexed by this whole exchange. And ultimately, Telemachus leaves the island with Mentor and a selection of other townspeople, including his half-sister and Odysseus' girlfriend, woman in the town. I don't know really what how we should refer to this woman. The mother of Odysseus' daughter. And they, they sail off, and the plan is to go and get Polycast and maybe go and found a colony somewhere. Maybe in Italy. Who knows? And Penelope, it says that Penelope is very sad and she begs Telemachus not to go and uh, bemoans the fact that she gets one male family member back and then another leaves. But the sense that I got was that Telemachus didn't find this terribly convincing. He felt like she was saying that out of duty and obligation, not because she actually was terribly sad that her son was, was heading off into parts unknown. Odysseus is described as holding on to the boat and kind of wading out to sea with it to try and persuade Telemachus to stay and to follow the same path that he has. And Telemachus is still just not, not interested. That isn't the life that he wants. And again, don't blame him for a second after what his life has been and how his father has come back. Because even though Odysseus, it seems, slots back into his old life very, very neatly, Odysseus, before he returns to his his status as chief and as as king, is a broken man. It's made very clear over and over again through the book, Odysseus is a broken man. And that is what Telemachus sees, and that is what Telemachus does not want for his own life. So off he sails to find this girl that he thinks is pretty cool and a different way of life. And it was... Not the Telemachus I was anticipating, it was not the Odysseus I was anticipating, or the ending I was anticipating, and actually all three were very pleasant surprises. I would agree. Although, okay, out of all the things that happened, what surprised you the most? That's a really good question. I think that the two things that really caught me, one was this continual portrayal of Odysseus as broken, because that really isn't something that we see. We see him as flawed, we see him as tired, we see him as like sad, but he is a broken old man for the majority of his appearances in this novel. And that did surprise me. And the other thing was Circe and the animals and that her husband taught her how to turn men into animals or how to make men think that they were animals. What? No, 
Did Aeolus' wife teach him how to bottle the winds in a bag? I don't think so. Why does Cersei have to learn the only source of her power from a fucking man? You don't have to make her a goddess. You don't have to make her a nymph or immortal. She can be just a human woman living on an island. But for the love of God, give her some personal strength and autonomy rather than just kind of being there carrying on whatever it was her husband did. No, thank you. No. Brief rant aside, but the other thing that, that really did surprise me was the lack of physical transformation in that whole little sequence. It, it's not a lot of pages, but it was different. And I think I've said clever and interesting. I enjoyed it. I would have liked for it to have been Cersei's own power rather than something that some dude taught her. And I would have liked for it to have been more of a permanent change that she had to purposefully undo rather than it being something that just wears off by itself. Just because it, it feels like both of those things undermine Cersei's power and undermine her as a character. And I don't know if it's because we've just read Cersei by Madeline Miller and she's so wonderful in that, or I'm just feeling angry today. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't appreciate that very much. I think there is definitely like the bleeding effect, shall we say, of reading something that literally turns her into her own individual, unique person. And yeah, this is definitely a step back. I agree that I'm like, you should give her more just autonomy to, to be a, a woman and, and a powerful one at that. But also, I'm like, I did have to keep in mind, I'm like, but this is an adaptation that clearly is by a dude wanting to cover dudes. So I'm like, the hope is not high that they would really invest into their female characters. I mean, because it's like the whole thing is not plot driven, it's character driven and you're driving male characters, right? Yeah. Something that also did just occur to me is the only female character who is more fully rounded. And I don't think any of them were very fully rounded, but I think Polycast was the most rounded of all of them. And she's the female character who rejects all of the things that women and girls are supposed to do in this society and culture. She's not like other girls and in, is therefore inherently superior to other women because she's taking on male characteristics that women are not typically permitted. Like she fights, she wrestles, she is sarcastic and strong-willed and all of these great things, which I adore and approve of, but it felt a little bit uncomfortable. I will take this two ways. I will say I want to take it as a compliment that we are lifting up tomboyish women because it's not okay to be a girly girl which i feel that so deeply because my entire life i've been a tomboy i've never been the frilly prom queen who wants to wear all the frilly things so i'm like great i was that kid who when i was 10 was like running around my backyard with toy swords and shields and slaying dragons so great fine but yes since she's like the only one that is also either a commentary on well, women who are in, uh, more feminine are like inherently weaker. So unless you try to look and be like a man, then you don't have value, which also is a terrible message. But you know what? I'm feeling optimistic today. I've been having a good day so far. So I'm going to go with it's the former, but, but it's probably not that. Anyway. To be fair, I, I suspect there wasn't a lot of conscious thought put into it yeah. but it does make me uncomfortable that that the only woman who really is unequivocally 
viewed positively is the tomboy. So I have thoughts about the way in which Telemachus comes home, because this is something we don't see very often. I mean, we know he's in danger traditionally from the story, but it's always like a, well, he's just in the house with the suitors. And the minute that his mother picks a new husband, he's dead, right? We don't really get tales of like danger before that. Like you always knew he was in danger, but not like imminently like to be killed off before. So I found it quite interesting that he had to sneak home from Pelos. And I loved how it went in this direction of like, yeah, they're setting a trap off this island and I'm going to like jump into the rocky waters where I could just be like killed in the pitch black of the night. And then I'm going to sneak up and, and find some help and see all if I survive. I, I found that to be incredibly new and interesting and kind of fun that we got that angle. And I did also like, I really liked how they handled the emotionally charged reunion of father and son and not in the way that we normally expect. Like as you know, I think most adaptations when he comes back and he just goes like, Telemachus, I am your father, right? You get this like Star Wars ass kind of no. And I'm like, how do you know? How do you, are you not going to seriously call me like, where's DNA test dude? So I do. I love it. The, the whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've seen it before, but I love the whole. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna run a test because I think in a lot of adaptations where they decide they're just gonna go with the I'm gonna just put the gods in and say this is where Athena comes down, right? And I think in most adaptations that have the goddess, they come down and they have her be like, "This is your father." And in a lot of other adaptations, he's cloaked in some way, disguised, and so you do have the I will make it so that only you recognize your father. But to everyone else, he's disguised. So he just kind of knows it's him. I, I don't want to say I was expecting kind of something like he would just sort of inherently know. But it's really refreshing to be like, I'm going to ask you all these questions because a lot of people already know about his scar, which, you know, okay, fine. So this dude, I think, cut a scar to pretend he was my dad. And you're like, oh. So I really like how they sort of did the reveal of the illegitimate child wrapped into what is something truly that only Odysseus would know. And I love how it was like the, what did you leave at the shrine? Where is this? It's like putting together a puzzle. So I really was not prepared for that. And I liked it because as I said, it, like this Telemachus has been built up as being really philosophical. And so it makes sense that he wouldn't just be like, yes, and I believe it just because I want it. So it doesn't make it true. I also want to say that it's hard because he didn't like give her space and room to really develop her out. But you know what? I thought that this Penelope actually had much more personality than in like 80% of other things. Because again, she's just sad girl, sad girl waiting for husband doesn't do much but in this one even though she is a sad girl waiting for husband in her conversations with telemachus you still get this dynamic you see her she goes from like insisting the husband is alive and so she was like no i'm gonna stand my ground and then you get this conversation where he's like no actually i'm gonna tell you dad's alive like this is what you were hoping for to then see her like complete 180 and be like no, stop lying to me. He's dead. You're just trying to make me feel better. You should leave because I'm going to choose a new husband. I'm like, that told me so much more about 
And I think it's more true to what her state of mind would have been because I mean, obviously not in her situation. Can't even imagine what that feels like, but yeah, I, I feel like just in other cases that I can sort of pseudo relate to anytime I've wanted something to be true so badly that like, if someone comes to me after a really long time and says it's true, of course I'm not gonna be like, Oh my God, it came through. Yup, this must be it. No, I'd be like, this is a fucking trick. So I loved how that this one captured what I think would be a real reaction, which is what you don't get. And even when she like actually sees it's him after the slaughter of the suitors, she's still kind of like, are you really? And then you have this whole realization of like, wait, oh my God, wait, it, it is my husband. And then her first reaction is shit. So I... I really liked it because I know it's hard to do things with Penelope. There were only like two adaptations really where I think I was like, yes, I positively really like Penelope. It was like Natalie Haynes version because obviously she was written fantastically. And I forgot what other adaptation I said. I really, really, really like her. But even in a book that is not plot driven, that is character driven and centered around so many men, he manages to do so much with so little with this character and I really liked that. And I know that that like in the back of my mind, sacrificing your other female characters for this was probably a deliberate choice. And while I would have always liked to see more women and just more done, it, it was hard for me to be mad. I feel like I'm getting a, a truly dynamic Penelope without having to do too much. And I think part of what I love is the simplicity of how he does so much in such little real estate. It's not a big book. And even within a small book, he doesn't give Penelope like a huge chapter or lane. And to be able to give us someone with personality and, and capture all these deep feelings in a pretty accurate manner without even having it be from her perspective was also something I was so impressed by. So just that whole thing did you feel that this penelope was rather well done did you kind of feel that she's better but still not great like yeah i'm curious to think what you thought of this penelope i think she was different in the same way that odysseus was different to the other odysseus odyssei we've seen this penelope is different because there is real emotional and mental trauma there that goes beyond just kind of like the weeping wailing sad girl that we we've seen in other things she essentially stops talking she doesn't go down and, and see people and you don't see it narrated but telemachus spends a lot of time thinking about his mother so even though penelope doesn't get a lot of line space to herself odysseus thinks about her a lot so you get a lot of her character development seen through her, the eyes of her son and him remembering the woman she used to be and how lively and vivacious and happy she was and hopeful. There's a whole chest in the temple full of offerings from her to Athena to bring her husband home. So seeing that and seeing or hearing, I guess, Telemachus recount her descent downwards into despair, depression, maybe. She stops leaving her rooms. She stops talking. She doesn't really eat an awful lot. And then the first time we see her, she's got this, this man in her chambers and he like touches her neck 
and she freezes and it's a really great like fear response like i got really shivery reading it it was very uncomfortable and i think having penelope before narrated by telemachus and then having current penelope kind of pop in and out of the narrative herself it worked really well and it, it kind of gave the impression of her having been a constant figure in Telemachus' life and in the great house before. And now her absence in Telemachus' life, her absence in the town and in Ithaca as a whole is kind of mirrored, I assume deliberately, by her absence, her physical absence in the story. She doesn't come in and say an awful lot. Telemachus will go and find her on occasion, but she doesn't take up a lot of space herself. So I did enjoy it. I did think amazingly somehow it was a bit of an innovative take on her, how we're getting innovation after however many thousand years it's been since this story was first told. I don't know, but somehow we are. And while yes, on the whole, I was not overly thrilled with the way the various women were depicted in the book. I did feel that Penelope had an emotional depth that you don't get with someone like Nausicaa or Calypso or Circe. It's a give and take, right? I mean, okay, so we had a whole book on Circe, so I'm like, okay, I feel better because we have things like that where if, you, if you're like, I want to go see Circe, then you, you can't. We don't really have a lot of that from, from Penelope, really. So no, it was definitely a happy change. So much of how it was crafted made sense. I mean, I think the line that gave me shivers when Odysseus finds out that she knew about his affair and his illegitimate daughter, and he was like, oh, well, if I hadn't left for Troy, would you have stayed with me? And she was like, no, I would have left. Absolutely not. Yeah, she was like, no, I, I was ready to leave. But then she was like, well, then you left for Troy. And just like her needing like a constant where she was like, it was kind of easier for you to pseudo be here, but not be here was interesting. Obviously, not a lot of other adaptations have the, any kind of illegitimate child. So like that particular part of this wouldn't work because it wasn't a thing. But it added a different dimension to her character and to the purposes of this story, which I greatly appreciated. And I will say that it did strike another chord, not only with kind of what I feel are appropriate reactions to situations fight flight or freeze no one talks about freeze in the fight or flight you just think you, you run or you fight yeah like the way that she handled a lot of it and, and and so much of her disappearance i felt was in line with like i don't know about you because i know every everyone copes with tragedy and hard things hardship differently but i related to this because in the couple times, I've been lucky also, I just haven't had a lot of great tragedy in my life. Luckily, no one wants that. But in the few times where I have dealt with something really deep and very painful, I think like there's the assumption where, you know, oh, you're going to have friends reach out, people you knew and offering like a shoulder to cry on or help or I will come and cook for you and all these things. And there's like this assumption, right, that you're going to be like sitting dramatically crying on the couch, like, yes, give me your love and your cookies. But no, it's like her pain was so deep and so unnerving that she would prefer to it's like it's so deep that she can't even talk about it. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like the I'm not going to sit here and fall apart on my bed right and just cry it's like the 
you will just see me kind of have this dead look in my eye, but I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to weep. I'm just going to sit and feel this pain so deep that I just can't talk. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I feel like, you know, when I went through like a really big thing, I was like, that's kind of how it felt. Like, I think people were expecting me to cry. Like, you know, I feel like for st- standard potential reactions for like kids when your your parents tell you they're getting divorced, right, is like you rage and then you slam doors and you run around and you cry. It wasn't like that for me. I was like, I mean, okay, it's not like deep, like her pain. No, but it's a profound change, especially when you're a kid. And my parents told me the day after my ninth birthday, let me just say. So they let me have like my birthday day, but then they were like, no, we're going to sit you down and be like, now we're splitting up our family. And for like an adopted kid that's already traumatic, who already lost one family, the fact that like a second one was like kind of being torn apart. I was like, oh, this hurts. So... Yeah, it was a super real conversation, but I remember, yeah, like I have these memories of like sitting in the kitchen after my parents were like telling me, and then they were like, are you okay? Do you want to cry? Like you can ask us questions because it's, don't worry, we love you. And I remember I was just like, I don't even want to talk. I was like, I just want to sit with it. And, and, and like, I think they were shocked by my reaction of like, can I just go like read a book or watch TV or just like go play with my Do toys? Something, something, yeah. And they were like, what? So that's what really struck me about Penelope, which I'm like, oh my God, she's really trapped in this well of pain so deep that she just would rather not talk about it. She's so multi-layered. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was really shocked about in a narrative, not even about her, mm-hmm. that is shaped by her absence in multiple ways, where she really is like, I wouldn't even call her a supporting character. She's very peripheral. She's gone, right? So to have that level of depth in something with a peripheral character, I was shocked, but deeply appreciated it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one, that one really struck a chord deep Mm -hmm. with me. So I was like, well done. And I guess the other one would be totally different, but the characterization of Odysseus's condition when he comes back and is trying to kill the suitors. Like, obviously, yes, he's been described as old right he's weather beaten and now he's just frail and i think coming from watching like the kirk douglas where he comes back and then he goes crazy and then you're Mm -hmm. like oh my god it's the madness of odysseus and he's just like running around throwing shit and you know cutting him down with his bow and arrow it was kind of jarring to read this one line where telemachus is talking about like he was rushing because he felt he had to enter the fray to protect his frail father. And then the fact that he was like stepping over his father who was fallen on the ground, mm-hmm. who was like being shaken and knocked down by the the force of blows by like younger men. And I was like, I'm not used to seeing Odysseus like frail and on the ground. Like the fact that he seemed like he was actually in danger. I was like, what? This is not our superhero Odysseus? That struck a chord also because I don't know why. Today I'm in like super happy but also super reflecting mode because I was talking about Greece this morning, I guess, and it made me relate to what we had read or what I listened to because I had older parents. They're probably the oldest parents in my class growing up. Or there might have been like one other person, but either way, they were older parents. And so like my dad was already in his mid-50s when they adopted me. And 
so, but I've like, my dad's been in such good health and he's, and he takes such good care of himself. You know, he still works out even to this day and the man's 83. So I've always just learned to see my dad as like independent mm-hmm. and strong and it doesn't matter the age. He doesn't act like an old man. But when he came to my graduation in Greece this past January, for the first time seeing him sort of walk down the cobblestones in Athens, you it's a city where you kind of need good balance because, well, ancient. And I was I remember feeling so shocked for the first time. And I hadn't seen my dad in person, let me be clear, since before I left for my master's program. So I saw him in August of 2021, and now I was seeing him January of 2023. So, like, that's, like, not super long time, but long enough. So... Yeah, like seeing him walk around Athens, I was struck for the very first time. Like, my father is not young. Like, he doesn't seem old, but like, wait, he's not just this strong totem that mm-hmm. I've taken him to be. Because for the first time, I I felt like, oh my god, I need to watch him when he's walking on the streets because he could accidentally like fall on a curb. And then it really struck because I was showing him the new Acropolis Museum for the first time, and normally in the past we would have just like gone up those stairs up into like the main second floor area and they're not like steep they're kind of tiered and so i just kind of assumed we'd walk up the stairs and then i see my dad like going for the 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 side where there's like an actual railing and i was like my dad doesn't use railings Mm But he was. And so I just found myself like as I was on this trip with him, I was like actually concerned walking around all the sites. And so for the first time, I was like connecting his balance issues to his age. And that was so jarring. So jarring for me. This is what it must have been like for Telemachus because based on the myth that everyone's telling him about his father being heroic, strong, you know, whatever, to seeing this frail old man. So these feelings of like how jarred he was by this. He says at one point, I thought I thought I needed my father and actually my father needs me. And yeah. that switch is very profound, I think. Yeah. And so that really hit deep because I'm getting to the point where like, I'm a 27 year old adult, right? Who's expected to like be fine without my parents and it's true because i always felt like through because he was financially supporting me through high school especially through college and i didn't really become any kind of independent until after college and i got my first job up until the end of college like 22 years old felt like i needed my dad yeah i don't like i'm in a space now where i don't feel like i need him i just kind of want him around Mm. because dad but yeah it's 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 weird. So I don't know, like the whole story, I think the first half, based on the first half, I was prepared to not be, I don't want to say impressed, but I was kind of like, okay, so this will be a different take. I wonder like how much life can you breathe into a character we don't really see or hear Mm -hmm. much of anyway. You probably can't have a lot of depth. If anything, I was like, okay, it's going to just be like someone attempting to put a different spin on a story that is ages old and we know it and we've heard it, we've seen it. And so, yeah, that first half, I would say I wasn't really impressed, but like reading the second half, I think really turned the whole thing around because Mm -hmm. now I'm like, this to me is excellent for so many different reasons. And I never would have based off that first half would hand this book to someone and be like, you should read this. It's good. You know, I would have been more likely to hand them any of the other great adaptations. But after the second part, putting it together as a whole work, even though there's stuff I don't like about it, stuff like 
think could have been well done. I think this has gone to the maybe list of top five alternative myth adaptations that I would give people. Was there a marketed difference for you between the first and the second half? Did it change your entire perception of the story like it did for me? Yeah, I think so. Because he starts obviously with Telemachus missing his dad and lamenting the fact that he can't fight like his dad can fight. And then he goes and, and looks for Odysseus and can't find him. It's a bit of a slow start, I think. And it does a lot to really explain the situation and give you a very good emotional connection kind of to what's happening. You don't like the suitors and you don't like them for very specific reasons. It's not just that they're in this house trying to marry a woman who doesn't feel like getting married again. It's they're rude, they're arrogant, they're aggressive, they are taking over someone else's living space, they're abusing the guest friendship ideal. And it's kind of visceral, right? They're not nice people, they're not good people, you don't want them there. And you feel, I, well at least I really felt Telemachus feelings of helpless frustration and this idea that if he can do something, literally anything, he can't fight them off, but maybe if he goes and looks for Odysseus and either finds him, great, that changes something. If he doesn't find him, then he will make a change himself. So you get this kind of investment as a reader in the situation in Ithaca. And then Odysseus appears and he's absolutely not what you expect, even a little tiny bit. And it, it keeps going. The second half, I think, really takes this unexpectedness and just rides with it and really does an excellent job of not only developing Telemachus as a character, he goes from this boy who just wants his dad back to really a man. And it, it sounds so cliche to say, oh, it's a story of becoming a man, but it kind of is because it's that realization of, and the realization starts in the first half of my father is not who I thought he was. People are telling me he's a liar. That doesn't match up with with my own understanding. So you, you kind of get that starting. But then he meets Odysseus and he is a liar. And he's not this big, heroic, strong fighter. He's an old man who needs help. And he's not just going to like pull Telemachus out of the fire and fix everything. Telemachus has to do it, an awful lot of it by himself. So he goes from being convinced that there's nothing he can do to actually pretty successfully getting rid of these horrible people who are plaguing him and his mother. And then going a step farther and really taking control of his own life and going somewhere else where he can be the person he wants to be and not this carbon copy of his parents. And I think that in a very general way mirrors a lot of experiences that people have as they grow into adulthood, right? You realize that your parents aren't the perfect all-knowing people that you thought they were when you were a child, you realize that actually they have their own flaws and struggles. And you realize that sometimes they need you to be almost like the grown up in the situation. And then you kind of take the step into, well, who do I want to be separate from who do my parents want me to be? And I enjoyed it very much as that kind of navigating early adulthood just through a Greek Homeric lens. No, it's true though, because I think, I mean, I'm not a parent, you are, so you could probably talk to it more. But I think I've just met so many young people, right, who we definitely have like this idea that 
sometimes parent, they want their kids to be carbon copies of themselves, or if not, they push them to do other things because they want to live vicariously through that because, oh, well, I didn't get to be an athlete, but if my son or daughter is like amazing, then I want to push them to do it because maybe I can live through that. And yeah, so there's kind of like that expectation of, does my parent want me to be me? Do I have to be them? Do I have to be something extraordinary with my own talents, but not because I love it, but because they want it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I luckily my parents were kind of like, do your thing because we could tell you are not like us in in terms of at least my, um, I mean, okay, it's debatable because anyone who meets me and who's met my parents, it's really funny. I don't really see it, but then again, I'm biased. But yeah, they're like, oh my God, all your mannerisms and the way you just talk and are, they're like, you are definitely your parents' child. And I'm like, what? But yeah, interest wise, like my mom hated history class. She thought it was boring. Just She's a creative, she's an artsy person. So she loved dance. So I was like, it makes sense. Although, you know, it's funny because I talked to her now and she's like, my grandfather was a history teacher. I should have paid more attention because it's actually kind of cool now. And I wish I knew more things. So she was kind of like, it's it's okay. It skipped a generation and went to you. And I was like, okay. But yeah, my dad, you know, he likes history, but not in the way I do. So it's, it's interesting. My parents let me become who I was meant to become without any interference, but I understand the need. And I, and I know psychologically that as we age and our parents get older, your parents will eventually need to be parented themselves. But you're like, but I'm not ready. Wait, I'm not. No, I'm like, I'm still needing to be parented. Mm -hmm. Just so the the whole your parents need to be parented. I was like, what? So I was like, yeah, man, Telemachus, I, I, I feel you. I feel you super hard there. There was one other section that stood out to me. Telemachus leaving, just just peacing out Mm -hmm. at the end. I can't say it was unexpected the way the novel was going. I'm like, it was very interesting hearing like my father's home. So there's no space for me. There's no mm-hmm. room for me left on Ithaca. Now I'm kind of like, LOL. I know what you mean, but also like space wise. Ithaca is a pretty big place. <laughs> you, there is room for you. You could go like to the other side of the island, live in a cave, be a hermit. And he would not cross paths with his father. Like, I'm sorry. I'm just like, look, man, I've been all over Greece. I see the size of these islands. It's huge. I've flown in a plane literally over Ithaca on my way to Corfu. It's big. So I was kind of like, that's that's fucking dramatic. But I was like, you know what? You want to go be with your tomboy friend who teaches you to wrestle unsupervised. Do you think he should have left at the end? I think there was so. No, I think the way he describes it, Penelope and Odysseus are just like reverting back to how they were when Odysseus left. They haven't had that experience of parenting as a couple. And ancient Greece, I'm not entirely sure how much of that actually happened, but we're just going to go with it. They've gone back to like newlywed stage. There isn't room for anyone else in their relationship. As much as Penelope, one hopes, loves Telemachus, he's become peripheral now. There isn't space for him as far as she's concerned because she and Odysseus haven't learned to make their family of two into a family of three. And it's much easier, or at least my experience is, it's much easier when you're starting out with a child because both parents, again, the way I have parented, both parents are equally invested in each other and in the child. And you're you're parenting together. It's a, it's a 
couple activity. So you learn as you go, right, how to do it and how to be a family unit with this new person. Odysseus and Penelope haven't had that. They don't seem terribly interested in experiencing it. Let's be very honest. Odysseus is talking about sending Telemachus off to join an army somewhere. And Penelope is just being a 16-year-old girl, it looks like. So I don't blame him for deciding to go somewhere else. He does say when Odysseus first comes back that their relationship is going to be it's going to take work to navigate and build and make stronger. And he's 100% right, but it would take work on both ends. And the sense that I get from the book is that Odysseus is uninterested in that. He wants the Telemachus to grow up into this paragon of, of Greek manhood that he expects that he has been. And he's not terribly interested in finding out who Telemachus actually is. So I don't blame him for leaving. And I think it probably was the right decision. It definitely made sense within the narrative of, of the book. I can see it. Yeah. Your situation is so different, but I'm like, I know you have like a 15 year old in your house and that basically the same age as Telemachus. I'm like, I don't know if you're a 15 year old. I was like, okay, bye. And then like leaves and then like comes back. I guess I'm like, I don't know. Is there room? I don't feel like you'd just be like, no, nah, I don't want the 15 year round anymore. Oh, no, there would be like a massive space where she yeah. should be. But I suppose it's because you also have had that experience of you've made room and yeah. you, you are not a single parent whose husband has been off for almost 20 years just wandering around the world. Well, different situations, but interesting. I think he'd probably be happier though. It doesn't sound like he's had a terribly yeah. happy life up until now. He has good memories of his childhood, but mm. since the suit has turned up, it's just been hard and uncomfortable and degrading. And now his father's back and it's just weird, honestly. Yeah. You do need a new start. <laughs> but, well, yes, he needs a new start for sure. Although I'm just like, did you have to go so far away? <laughs> like you can just pop over to like another little island right next door. <laughs> Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I, yeah. Eh. But also it's just, it works for the narrative of this story, but I'm also just going to say as a Homer purist, I'm like, but this is a man who his son was born and he loved him very much. And like, if you look at the Odysseus in Fall of the City, he's all about, I want to get back to my son. Right, but the, the thing is when you get back and that son is not, who you're anticipating. Do you deal with that by trying to mold him into the person you think he should have become? Or do you deal with that by finding out and getting to know who he actually is? Well, I'm going to say it's going to depend on the adaptation. This is very true. If you get the Odysseus from Fall of a City, let's say, who's very focused on family, the you know, mm -hmm. and they showed that through him pretending to be crazy, and then he almost kills his son because he doesn't want to leave. And then let's just say you have a Telemachus like the one in... The Kirk Douglas Ulysses, who's all about my father, Padre, where are you? I need you. And he's like more than happy to have his father return. Mm. You know, if you have like those two, then you could get a really happy like, son, I've missed you and you miss me, obviously. So I just want to get to know you. But mm -hmm. also like that version, he learned how to fight. He was described as like a strong young man mm -hmm. who is kind of taking after his father. So yeah, like if you have a thing that is like he is strong and did learn to fight then he wouldn't need to be molded so much because he would have these so he's already like, yeah right he'd have these warrior skills and 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 so you would it would just be coming back to like teach him how to be a ruler which you would want to learn from your father 
And if you were a good father and you were like, I should pass these skills to my son so he can rule after me, you would probably just get home and do that. So I don't know. It depends on the adaptation. Mm -hmm. It depends on how you want your characters to be. In this one, obviously, it wouldn't work. It didn't work. But I think generally it depends. I cannot say. Do you have final thoughts before we close? Yeah, I would just say I really enjoyed it more than I thought. I will say if you are going to read this, maybe don't go for the audiobook version only because they use two different separate narrators. So one guy narrated only the Telemachus bits and then the other guy did the Odysseus and sort of the Phaeacia parts, I, I guess. But it's very distracting because especially toward the end of the book, I got this really weird thing where the older guy who's narrating the Odysseus half, when he gets back and he's talking to like Eurymachus, he had Eurymachus talking in like a very strange Scottishy British. It was very distracting because I was just like, you read everything else in not an accent, so I don't understand. Well, because in the print book, it's written with an accent. It's written with like a very strong rural accent. And he's the only one who has it. And it was it, it was a little jarring. Okay. So basically he does this rural southern UK accent, which is very distracting. But then the minute that Telemachus gets back and then it shifts to the original Telemachus reader, who's a completely different actor, voice actor. When he reads the dialogue for Eurymachus, we literally switch to a straight up Southern American accent. So it's like a Texan accent. Because suddenly, y'all, he's all over here. And you're like, I, I, one dude's British. And then the very next chapter, I'm literally hearing Southern U.S. accent. And I'm like, what is going on? I was like, I understand you need to do an accent. But I'm like, did someone not talk to both guys and be like, are we both doing Southern American? Are we both doing like Southern British, like country bumpkin? Like, I don't know what this is. All I know is I did not like this because my brain was hurting. It was confused. I don't think of or like my ancient epics and classical material in a raging southern U.S. accent. It sounds weird, and I know it's a legacy of colonialism that I'm so used to, like, British people reading classical material, but you know what? It's still, it just sounds nicer on the ears, okay? So I'm going to be the one picky person and say, keep it to posh British accent. Or, or just choose one of them or choose but i still don't i still wouldn't want the whole thing in raging southern u.s it sounds weird like no my none of my homeric characters speak with a southern american accent it's either like british or greek accent is what i hear so i'm just like i did not like that but yeah it, it, but on top of everything this was very inconsistent so next time you read read the print edition or if you're gonna go for the audiobook just be no prepared. Be prepared. It was distracting. And let me just say, I really miss the... I, I had such a good chain. The last, like, three books before this that we did was all read by, like, a British woman with a very sexy voice. It was so alluring. And I was like, yes, yes, listen more. And then this was kind of disappointing in terms of listening. But at least the story was good. Anyway, final thoughts from you, Megan. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was 
cleverly done. I thought there were some interesting things that we genuinely hadn't seen before. And it made me like Telemachus. My feelings for Telemachus were not as strong as for Paris and Helen, but generally speaking, he's not a character I enjoy especially. I liked this one. I felt there was some good character development, good personal growth, and it was very, very well written. Yeah, I definitely don't hate him. I'm just sort of ambivalent because he doesn't do much. And so I'm like, congratulations, Patrick Dillon. You gave him personality. You made him into like a three-dimensional person. You helped make Penelope a more interesting person. Your relationship with Odysseus is a well done, well done. And now I can say we ended the season with like a complete shock because this is the one of the only significant changes to my feelings on characters that I have gone through through this incredible ride of a season. So anyway, that's what I think. And I can't believe that we've gotten to the end of our season one, our big mega season on Homer. I'm like simultaneously happy that we're not going to do just Homer. I never thought I'd hear you say that. I know. I'm just like, but after like 20 things straight in a row, it's a lot of Homer and I love Homer, but it's a lot. So if you've been with us for the whole season, thank you for joining us. And thank you for bearing with us because this has been a lot of Homer. And especially for like non-classicists, this is a lot of Homer. So we will be back next week with our full season one recap, final thoughts, looking back at some of our season one predictions, seeing if any of them came true. But it has been a pleasure to analyze Homer, and I'm really happy. I don't know about you, but I'm really happy that we have done this entire season and so many, so many different Homer adaptations. I feel like I've really read and been introduced to a lot of cool adaptations, but I'm excited to get into other, other things. I've enjoyed myself very much. It's been really good for just personally reading a bunch of stuff that I've been meaning to read for actual years and just never finding the time to do it. Turns out my brain just needs a deadline, which surprises no people who have ever met me ever because nothing gets done unless there is a deadline. And it was just so much fun. I really yeah. had a great time. Yeah, like, well, my brain needs a deadline, but also it needs to know that it's gonna get to geek out and talk to someone else who's read the same thing and has a similar background. That helps so too. I'm not explaining things. So I think, yes, this was a brilliant idea, if I do say so myself. We're very smart It's forcing us to read, but then we get to geek out and talk. So this is the payoff. So anyway, join us next week for our season one recap. Thank you so much. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week.